just to get this out of the way, it has nothing to do with the sermon. But last week and for a couple weeks, I've been talking about this toilet in my house that has been broken and has needed to be changed and replaced. And I want you to know that yesterday I changed that toilet. I know, I know, I'm a hero. A man among boys, you're, you're looking at him right here. I'll tell you, I did make one tactical error. I forgot gloves. Turns out that changing an old toilet is a job you definitely want gloves for. Uh, so anyways, I'll be in the back to shake hands afterwards. So if you want to see me, see me back there, find me afterwards. Let's, uh, let's, let's pray before we, we jump in together. God, thank you for your people here this morning, your, your body. I pray, God, that you would move among us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would convict our hearts, and that you would draw those hearts close to yourself. I pray, God, that you would open up your word to us. We believe it's a grace from you. Would you speak to us through it? And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let me set up something that Peter says in Acts chapter 4 here. We're going to look at it together. Let me set it up first. He, Peter, one of the early apostles, heals a man who is lame at the beginning of Acts chapter 3. He couldn't walk, and Peter and the other apostles, Peter and John in Acts chapter 3, heal him. And then that begins a sermon, a chance for a sermon. It's an illustration for a great sermon. And the sermon is all about how this guy was healed in Jesus' name, in no other name but the name of Jesus. That's how he was healed. And then he goes on to start talking a lot about Jesus and how Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of God, and you need to surrender your lives to Jesus Christ too. So it's all this preaching about Jesus that gets Peter and the other apostles in trouble. So Acts chapter 4 starts, and the Jewish leaders at the time, they don't want him preaching about this name of Jesus anymore. And so they come, they tell him to stop it, and they throw him and his buddies into jail. And that sets us up for the scene, the interchange, this exchange, sorry, that Peter has with the Jewish leaders and something he says in Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 11. So let's look at this together. He says this, Jesus is the stone that you builders rejected which has become the cornerstone. He says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now, leave, leave that on the screen for just a second here. Okay, We live in a time period unlike any other time period where celebrities, public figures, and you and me can say something like this, and it reached thousands or maybe even millions of people. So we can say something without thinking about it instantly on our device, and that thing that we say can go out to millions of people. And you and I have watched in the news over the last few years how things that public figures have said without thinking about it have created disasters. Okay, can you believe he said that? And so, you know, I just imagine the PR departments for all these public figures, like, why didn't we take away his phone, you know, or her phone, right? Okay, so you, you know some of the things that I'm talking about. Well, if, as I think about the PR department for the early church, when they get word that Peter has said this, these two sentences, they had to be, like their heartburn had to be out the roof. He said, what? He said, what? 
Like he managed in two sentences to offend everybody we're trying to reach. Okay, we got to stop this guy. They call a press conference. We, you heard Peter say this. That's not exactly what he meant. All right. Okay, no, they don't do that. Let me, let me talk about what I mean when I say that he's offended everybody in two sentences. Let me talk about the context that the early church is being formed in. And this is going to make sense as we kind of flesh it out. Hang with me for a second. So Israel, the people of God, Jews at the time, were socially exclusive by nature. They were the in crowd in Jesus' eyes. And if you weren't in the in crowd, you were out. And so there's a physical place that represents the social exclusiveness of the people of Israel, and it's the temple. The temple has these various walls, and only certain people can get back past the first wall. Only certain people can get past the second wall. So their very connection to God is by nature exclusive of people. So it's cultural, it's racial, has to do with your background, has to do with whether you've sinned or touched something that you shouldn't touch and it's made you unclean. Maybe you have a special need. That's another thing that gets you rejected in that community. So there are all these ways in which the people of God in Israel at the time were socially exclusive. You're on the out if you're not on the in. The other context in which Christian faith is being shaped and formed and growing is the Roman context at the time. What we know about Rome was that Rome was spiritually inclusive. Spiritually inclusive. And what I mean by this is every time Rome went and conquered some new people group, and Rome was one of the greatest empires the world has ever seen, every time they conquered somebody else, they would just take their faith, their religious commitments, their gods, and they would add them to Rome's. Their thinking was, oh, maybe these people know something that we didn't know yet. Maybe there's a God they know about. We don't want to make that God angry, so let's bring that God in too, and let's worship that one. So Rome was spiritually inclusive. So the context, look at it. I want you you to see this. The context which the early church is being formed and shaped is a context that is socially exclusive and spiritually inclusive. You see that? And so the message that Peter shares in two sentences, the message of Jesus, what Christians believe at their core, we might say like this, that Christians are, in that context, socially inclusive and spiritually exclusive. You see that? Okay. Now, leave that on the screen for one second. The reason I've got red and green up there is I had this red light, green light thing going in my mind, where it's like red light means stop, not everybody comes in, exclusive. Green light means go, everybody come in, all are welcome, inclusive. But Russ made this slide, and he said, he showed it to me, he said, Eric, Christmas was three weeks ago. Okay, so, but I was committed at that point. We're going to roll with it because you're going to see that in the rest of the slides here in a second. But what I want you to see here is why some scholars have said that Jesus and therefore those who believe in him are doubly offensive. Do you see how we are exactly opposite of the context in which Christian faith is being shaped and formed? And that the first Christians include everybody. And yet they say, you got to have Jesus. They're exclusive in that sense. Or the message that Peter is preaching, we might say, is he's saying that Jesus is for everybody, but he is a must for every single person. So let's look at that passage again together. And you're going to see the red and the green there in that passage. Look at this. Salvation is found 
and no one else. Exclusive, exclusive, sorry. <clears throat> For there is no other name, exclusive, under heaven, given to mankind, to everybody. That's what that word means. Inclusive, by which we must, exclusive, be saved. Okay, to summarize, Jesus is the only way given, but he's given to everybody. So Jesus is for everybody, but he's necessary for every single one. That's what that word must actually means. Must, in this sense, means it is necessary. You've got to have Jesus, but he's for everybody. <clears throat> I was trying to think of a way to, to communicate this. How many of you have seen the movie Good Will Hunting? Has anybody seen that movie? Yeah, it's kind of an old, old movie. I'm not going to give away the whole thing, but there's this guy, Will. He's played by Matt Damon, and he is a janitor at MIT, one of the most prestigious universities in America. And he's coming out of parole. He's made some mistakes in his life. He's, he's had a hard life, and he's wound up the janitor at this prestigious school. So there's this brilliant math professor at the school. And every year he posts this problem to his graduate math students. One of the hardest math problems out there. He posts it and to try to locate who among these students can actually figure out this, this question. But he doesn't give the math problem to his graduate math students inside their classroom in a test so that they're the only ones who have access to it. He actually posts the problem on a whiteboard in the hallway so that presumably anybody who's walking by this, this math problem on the whiteboard in the hallway could solve it. And sure enough, Will, the janitor, is the guy who solves it. Okay. And so I see that scene, and it is a gospel scene to me. Because in a way, the question of life, how might I be saved? is a question that is posed to every single person. It's not an exclusive question that you got to be on the in crowd, be in the in crowd to consider. Like it is a question that is given to the whole world, to every person. It is available to all. And yet there is only one right answer, like a math problem. How many of you remember when you were doing math in high school? <clears throat> you know how most of the math problems in your textbook are designed so that you get a simple round number as the answer, as complicated as the problem is. So you're going to get to the end of the problem. I mean, you need to have an answer like 4 or 16. And if you get something like 3.72 pi squared, you know, you're wrong. Okay. So you know about this. <clears throat> That's really, really what Peter is saying here. Like the central question of life, what gives my life meaning? How can I have a life that lasts? How might I be saved from the difficulties of this life? That question is really only answered in one way. There's only one right answer. It's a question posed to every single person in this room, every person you know, every person in the world. And yet there's only one way to answer it, and the answer is Jesus. So let me talk to you about Jesus for a second. What got Jesus in trouble in his life was these two things, his inclusiveness and his exclusiveness. Let me talk about that. Every time Jesus had a meal, nearly every time, he was eating with people that other people thought he should not be eating with. Can you believe this guy, Jesus? He's over there eating with tax collectors and sinners. Can you believe that? 
He's protecting this woman caught in the act of adultery. He's interacting with the Syrophoenician woman, a Gentile at the table. Can you believe this guy, Jesus? The people he welcomes to himself. And yet we know that's who Jesus is, right? He's welcoming everybody to himself and his amazing grace. That's, that's who he is. And yet that part, the inclusiveness of Jesus, offends many people. There's this famous statue. It's called the Homeless Jesus And it's a statue of Jesus wrapped in a blanket, laying on a park bench. And there was a church in 2014 in North Carolina that erected that statue outside of their church building, the the homeless Jesus statue. So a park bench with the homeless Jesus laying on the bench. And they had a celebration as they put this statue up outside their church because they're going to communicate to the neighborhood that these, these are the kind of people that Jesus was for. He welcomed the people on whom life had been hard, people who had made mistakes, sinners and sufferers. Those are the people Jesus brought to himself, and so those are the people that are welcome here as this statue attests. But later that night, a woman drove by the church building in the evening, and she saw that statue with the homeless Jesus laying there. She thought it was real, and she called the police. And the news station that reported on this got a field day out of that. They said, yes, she called the cops on Jesus. Because it's offensive to us if we really think about it. The number and kinds of people that Jesus welcomes to himself. Overwhelmingly inclusive, Jesus. I'm reminded of that this weekend, Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. We think about that. And this calling of the body of Christ to reflect the inclusion of Christ himself. Everybody come. Everybody's welcome. That's the kind of place we want to be, right? But I don't think that offensive trait of Jesus is what really offends people about him today. If they really know Jesus, that's the part of him they love. Let me me show you this, okay? If we think about the context back then, so let's throw this back on the screen. You're going to see Christmas again. The context then was socially exclusive and spiritually inclusive. Is that the same as our context now? No, I don't think so. I think that the context now is socially inclusive and spiritually inclusive, isn't it? Think about that. The context now tells us that it is good and right to welcome all kinds of people to yourself, that that is a good thing. And praise God that that is part of our context today. But the context today also says that spiritually it's good and right for everybody to think what they want, believe what they want, that that's the good thing for them. You do you, I'll do me, your truth is your truth, mine is mine. So we live in a time that is socially inclusive and spiritually inclusive, and yet Christians are called to be socially inclusive and spiritually exclusive. So let's go back to the meeting of the PR department for the church. You know, we, we, some of you are in marketing, we call you up, and you're looking at this right here, and you're like, okay, if you could just change that last one just a little, right? You're almost there. Then people are going to love you. If you would just change that last bit, the spiritually exclusive bit, if you could just soften that up a little bit and make that red turn green, you have got it made. And yet, and yet, 
the early church grew by thousands every day when they offended every single sensibility of the culture they were in. And they did not align with them at all. Think about that. We live in a really uh, unique time. And there is an intense pressure on exclusivity in all of its forms today. I was reading an article the other day about movie theaters. And so you may have never heard this term. There's this term called the exclusivity window. And that was, for decades, the time period that movie theaters had to show movies before anybody else. So it came out in the movies first. It was a couple months later. It came out at Blockbuster or... or you know, Redbox, and then later streaming, okay? Well, what did COVID destroy? The exclusivity window. And now movies are launched where? Straight to you and your living room. There is a really intense pressure on exclusivity, and eventually we live in a time where exclusivity gives way, and there is, this, there is an extent to which that has been a really good pressure for the church, because there have been times, let's be honest, when we were more socially exclusive than Christ. And the calling of Christ to be socially inclusive was one that we needed to hear and needed to model ourselves after. And yet, if Christians ever become spiritually inclusive, we have lost the core of the faith, the core of it, and the truth that there is no other name by which we may be saved but the name of Jesus. None other. Uh, Martin Luther, Protestant reformer. Uh, it's early in the Protestant Reformation, and so uh, he's dealing with all of these Christians who are essentially peasants in, in medieval Germany, okay? And so he's convinced that these peasants, most of whom can't read, that they don't know what the Christian faith is really all about. And so he's got this task. He's like, we have got to teach them what Christian faith is really all about. So he writes what's called Luther's Small Catechism. And a catechism is a training tool that's used to teach people the faith. And it's usually in question and answer format. So here's the basic question. Here's the basic answer so that people can remember it. And so he starts his catechism. First question with this, what is the Christian faith. And the answer, the Christian faith is the confession that Jesus Christ is the world's inclusive, only Savior and Redeemer. You see both of them there again? That Jesus is the world. He's for everybody, but only Him. He's the Savior and Redeemer. So if you don't believe me, take my, don't take my word for it. Let's look at these four passages together. What I would love is for you to go home this afternoon and study these four passages. These are just a reflection of what I think is a broader theme in Scripture. But let's look at these four passages together. Let me show you this. 1 John 5, 11 and 12. Write that down if you're a note taker. Look at this. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have eternal life. Look with me in Matthew 28, 19, the Great Commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. I mean, that was so radical. He's telling, at this point, a bunch of Jews, go talk to everybody and bring them in. It was radical for them to hear that. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them how, though? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
Look with me at this, John 3, 16. You know this one. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We'll look at this, Hebrews last one, 7, 25 to 27. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Look at that. Get a drink of water here. So here's the problem with this. Jesus did not have a PR department. And when Jesus preaches this message, although there are a great number that are saved by it, there are also those who oppose him fiercely and leave him over this message. So I'm thinking about John chapter 6. Jesus says this in John 6. He says, I'm the bread of life, me. I'm the bread of life. And whoever eats this bread will live forever. And look what happens a few verses later. From this time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. See that? And that's what's happening to Peter and John and the apostles here. Here they are preaching this message about the radical inclusion of Jesus Christ, but the radical exclusivity of his claim on your life. And people keep telling them to stop it and arrest them because they're preaching that. And so that reminds me, that example of being arrested for preaching this message, or it reminds me of Martin Luther King Jr. You know what he said? He said something that I think, I mean, just really drives this point home. Martin Luther King Jr., he said this. He said, by opening our lives to God in Christ, we become new creatures. And this experience, which Jesus spoke of as the new birth, is essential. That's the word to pay attention to. Is essential if we are to become transformed nonconformists. Only through an inner spiritual transformation do we gain the strength to fight vigorously the evils of the world in a humble and loving spirit. Look at that. What did he know? All the great things we hope to accomplish for the world, all the inclusion we hope to engender in the world around us and in the church, it is impossible unless your life is taken hold of by the only one who can save it. That he is essential if what we hope to accomplish would ever become real. Look at that. So, you know, I use that goodwill hunting metaphor. You got the math problem on the whiteboard in the hallway, and Will, the janitor, figures it out when nobody else can figure it out. The metaphor kind of breaks down because, yes, the great question of life, how might I be saved, is a question that is posed to everyone, but it is not like, you know, the questions in your calculus textbook. The answer to the question is written there on the whiteboard, and it's circled, and it's squared a bunch of times. Like, you don't have to go and be perplexed about how might I be saved. The answer is given. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. The answer is Jesus. You know, like, he is the way that you can be saved in the only way and the only answer to this question. And if you arrive at another answer, Jesus.3746, you have arrived at the wrong answer. It's only him. But that question is posed to each and every one of us. And everybody you know in your life is seeking to answer that question. And this is your chance to draw them in and show them there is only one name, and it's Jesus. 
And so what does that mean for us? Two things here. The first is that at this place, the body of Christ, the Highland, we are going to be a place that pursues the radical social inclusion of Jesus Christ with everything we have, bringing all people in to hear the good news. But we can never, we can never compromise that the one we preach is the only name that saves, and it's Jesus. When I stand up here on Sunday, I'm not going to do a TED Talk about everything that I think in the world. I'm going to talk about Jesus. That's the name that saves. And I hope that you'll do the same in your life. But then lastly, so there's an evangelistic component of this. There's a conviction component of this. There's a way we live component of this. But there's also just a pastoral dimension. I'll, I'll end with this story. I was Yesterday morning, I was hanging out with the kiddos, and I get a call from Paul Gerritsen. Paul and Christy Gerritsen have been expecting uh, their little baby girl, Piper, for almost nine months. They were just a few days short of the due date. And I get a call from him early Saturday morning, a text message, actually, and I can tell he's distraught. They're at the hospital. Something's not right. And so she had a, a syndrome that hit right, right at the end. It's called HELP syndrome. It's very dangerous for mom and baby. And the only solution was they had to get that baby out now. And so I was close to the hospital. I ran up to the hospital, and I see Paul, and he's crying. He buries his head in my shoulder. And I go back there, and I see Christy just before they wheel her back and get to say a prayer over them. And I was struck by, like, how in that moment there were so many unknowns coming at them, just rapid fire, one after another, things that they were despairing, they couldn't understand, couldn't make sense of, and were scaring them to death. And yet, in that same moment, they had hold of the one thing they knew without a shadow of a doubt, and that is that they were in the hands of Jesus Christ, and no matter what happens, they would be saved. They would be saved. No matter what happens, they would be okay. And that is a great confidence to carry into this world. Baby Piper arrived, and she is doing well and beautiful. Mama Christie is doing great. I texted with them this morning. Praise God for that. But don't you want that confidence? If you don't know Jesus, I'd love to tell you about him here when I end service this morning. I'll slip back there to the back. I'd love to see you. If you'd like to be baptized into that name, the only name that saves we can do that this morning. I hope that you'll find me. Let me say a prayer over you as I dismiss you. God, I thank you that you have given us your son, Jesus Christ, who gave himself, died so that we might live. And we believe, God, that there is no other name, therefore, by which we may be saved but his. And so we pray in the confidence of Jesus' name. Amen.